Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History and our continuing study of St. Irenaeus's uh, wonderful book, Against Heresies. This is Marcus Grodi, your co-host with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. You know, I, when I hear that opening uh, music that we had chosen for this, one of the reasons that I liked that, besides the fact that it kind of reminds me of Aaron Copeland's uh, uh, wonderful appellation suite uh but it it does uh, to me it reminds me uh of the long heritage not only that we're talking about if as catholics but what you and i share also mm -hmm. with our separated brethren uh and i was thinking of it this morning your your heritage is more anglican mine was presbyterian lutheran congregationalist and and even this morning, um, when I was doing the Office of Readings, I can't remember if it was the Office of Readings or the Morning Prayer, but the, the hymn that was chosen um, for the prayers this morning was a hymn written by John Marriott, an old Anglican hymn. Yeah. Every phrase ends with, let there be light. I don't know if you remember the, the tune that... Uh -huh. the, yeah, yeah, and that's a famous. I was old... just trying. To... Yeah, because yeah. I was just I was just looking at it really quickly here. Um, it's either this morning or yesterday morning, but I, I happened to look up John Marriott, and he studied at the schools you studied at at, at Oxford, and uh, but a hundred and two hundred years ago. But you know, there we have in a Catholic liturgy of the hours, we're recognizing the work of grace in the hymn writers outside the church. Yes. We recognize that. Uh, and we, we I've been really moved by the liturgy of the hours for that. You know, they um, they mind that hymnody. Yeah. Good yeah. things. We're yeah. looking at the work of grace, which is one of the reasons why we felt comfortable using John Keeble's translation of Irenaeus. You know, he was in Newman's best buddy, you know, and, and but didn't become Catholic. But his sincerity and loyalty to the, the correct translation of this wonderful book is trustworthy. But it also puts us on the same table with our separate brethren to study together this great uh, book. And um, we're going to jump into book four, chapter. Book four, chapter. What did I say? Did I did I say it wrong? Chapter two, sections six and seven. And uh, again, I'm I, I don't know. I'm sorry, audience. Uh, it, whenever I read this, I'm just really moved by reading the theology that we've come to take for granted today. That. St. Irenaeus and others had to fight for in those early centuries. And we're, we're listening to what he has to say in his battle with heretics. And we're not focusing so mm -hmm. much on the specifics of what the heretics were teaching. What we're listening to is the truth that Irenaeus 
is emphasizing that has become such an important part of the foundation of what not just Catholics, but what all Christians believe today that we take for granted as if it was always there or as if it's just pure Bible. Just open the Bible and it's there. Well, not always. And that was the problem between what Irenaeus believes and what the Gnostics were believing because they were both using the scriptures as their launching point. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, as, as we get started today on this, I mean, we're, um, I guess the, in the background, not very far in the background, is Marcion. Um, he's the heretic, he's the Gnostic who um, basically wanted to throw out the entire Old Testament with the God of the Old Testament. And these are the arguments that St. Irenaeus is, is taking up today. Um, and where we begin, I mean, basically what these Gnostics were arguing was, all right, so the temple has passed away, Jerusalem has passed away, Therefore, the God that established them, he too must be temporary. And there are modern Christians who don't take that, that conclusion, but they see that all the Old Testament has passed away, and so they look at how they understand the church as if it's something that started brand new. Yeah. Everything else was passed away. There's no continuity. There's no trajectory. We just start from scratch. And so when you look at some of the churches that are popping up every five days in North America without any connection to historic Christianity, they're just new little church. The church of what's happening now over on 2nd Street, uh, there, there, there's no connectivity. There's no need for that, whereas both the Eastern Orthodox as well as the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church recognize that there is a continuity, especially with the priesthood. Mm -hmm. But I just, I, love, I just love how in these pages to come now, we're going to get an incredible survey of the Old Testament. Yep. And his argument is it, it points to Christ yep. and it points to the church. Um. Yep. They're, they're part of the family. Yep. And so I will admit also that our, our study won't be a systematic outline of his thoughts. We're just going to go through and pick out snippets of, of key things that he says. And we're going to have to jump over a, a bunch of things that just because of the nature of the beast. So well, we're going to start at the bottom of 313. Monsignor, I'm going to read for a bit, and then I'll throw, okay. I'll throw it to you. Um, to me, the, the theme that's behind what I'm reading is that Christ faulted not the law or the house of Israel. So in other words, he's not getting down on the law or the house of Israel, but he's getting down on those who transgressed the law and the house. And that's kind of the theme. And let me start reading. And in truth did he avenge his own house when he cast the money changers okay. out of it, who were both selling and buying, saying unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And, and what occasion had he to do this and say this and to avenge his own house if he was announcing another God? But it was to set a mark 
on the transgressors of his father's law. For he laid nothing to the charge of the house, neither did he blame the law which he had come to fulfill. But he was blaming those who made no good use of the house and those who were transgressing the law. I'm going to keep reading for a little bit. And accordingly, the scribes and Pharisees who began from the times of the law to despise God received not his word, that is, believed not Christ, of whom Isaiah said, Thy princes are disobedient companions of thieves, loving gifts, following after payments, judging not for orphans, and minding not the judgment of widows, and Jeremiah too, in the like manner, the chiefs of my people, saith he, knew me not. They are senseless and unwise sons. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they have not known. But as many as feared God and were anxious about his law, of their own accord hastened unto Christ and were all saved." For go ye, he saith to his disciples, to the sheep which were lost of the house of Israel. And the Samaritans too, we are told, our Lord having remained with them two days, did many more of them believe because of his discourses. Okay, so there's the text that I want us to, to, to focus on. But his first point seemed to be that it wasn't Christ wasn't having a problem so much with the law in the house of Israel, but those who were disobedient. That's right. You know, as, as you read that, Marcus, I couldn't help but um, think of um, the horrible situation that we got ourselves into um, in the 1930s when we had scholars, especially in Germany, making the argument that... Um, that Christianity represented a, a, a radical and absolute break with um, the law. And look, you know, obviously it served the Nazi propaganda down yep. the road, but but here Arrhenius is, he's so clear about this. He has nothing, he has laid nothing to the charge of the house of Israel. He does not blame the law. Um, so that's not what's defective. It's <laughs> the the unfaithfulness of the people that purportedly followed the yeah. law. Yeah. And he was, Irenaeus is not hesitant to point it out that the main people that were the problem were the leaders. The scribes and Pharisees, the leaders. Yeah. Like today. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, and in the history, if you will, of the entire church, the history of Christianity, it's there are the problems um, of the leadership. Not all the leaders, of course. You know, they're wonderful leaders, but yeah. we we know when we look at the history that there are are men who were called of God to be leaders and, and imitators of Christ, but weren't. And so we we have the the finger pointed to the Old Testament, and then we know that Irenaeus is into types. Yes. So we see a type here of what is to come. Um, for, you know, that's what it said at the bottom, you know, the scribes and Pharisees there, but then he goes, but as many as feared God and were anxious about his law of their own accord, hastened unto Christ and were all saved. 
For go ye, he saith to his disciples, to the sheep that were lost house of Israel. And, and he includes the Samaritans. He includes the Samaritans. He includes the Samaritans. So what he's saying is, as Peter came to discover, when Peter was in that upper room having that vision with the sheet and all the animals and, and being told to mm-hmm. eat, and and below him was the the Gentile that was having a vision too. And Peter was was basically coming to the conclusion, you can read it in, I think it's in Acts chapter 9, where he came to realize that God honors and loves all who fear him. Whomever. Yeah. And that's what Irenaeus is, is pointing yeah. out here. That you have these, um, he says there, in, of, the, of whom Isaiah says, thy princes are disobedient, companions of thieves, loving gifts, following after payments, judging not for orphans, and minding the judgment of widows. Well, there's the type of leaders in the church that will be like that and unfortunately lead to divisions in Christianity. All right. So it's not the law. Don't fault the law. Don't fault the church is what he's saying because the church Mm -hmm. is the trajectory of the house of Israel. It's not, that's not the problem. The problem's us (laughs) when we're not faithful. And then, and then, you know, and just looking ahead, what we're going to encounter in, in a few chapters down is this incredible point he makes that um, that to be faithful to God isn't so much a matter of externals. Um, it is it is the internal heart and the love and the obedience. And well, we're going to get some incredible examples of that in a few yeah. pages down the way. So, yeah. All right. If we turn to the bottom of page 316, we're going to jump over a little bit. And this is in chapter four, section two. Um, we have a section that deals with the law in Jerusalem, the ending of it with the coming of the New Testament. He says, thus, since the law began from Moses, it ended in due course in John, Christ having come to fulfill it. And therefore the law and the prophets were with them even until John. Jerusalem also, accordingly beginning from David and completing her proper times, the giving of law was to have an end in the revelation of the New Testament. Now, how do you fit that together with what we just wrote? read a, a couple pages ago, Monsignor. About how these things pass away? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I thought he has an expression that um, you being um, a good farmer would appreciate. If you go to the top of chapter four, section one, um, um, this is as if one should say that if stubble were a creature of God, it would never be forsaken of the corn (laughs) and that the refuse twigs of the vineyard, uh, if they were of God's making, would never be bereaved of the clusters and cut away. I think he's using a wonderful argument from nature here that um, the the whole thing about nature is that things progress, grow, 
and they give way to something else. And it is that, you know, basically the harvest, it's the coming of the harvest. So like, when we say that Jerusalem is like stubble or the temple, the old temple is like stubble, we're not saying it's junk, but yeah. that it served a purpose in getting us to um, the harvest in Christ. He, he repeats two phrases in what we covered on page 314 and then now on the bottom of 316. In 314, he said, he laid nothing to the charge of the house, neither did he blame the law which he had come to fulfill. Which he had come to fulfill. To fulfill. At the bottom of page 316, thus since the law began with from Moses, it ended in due course in John, Christ having come to fulfill it. So there's that, that doctrine, that theology of Christ fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling the law, fulfilling all that was pointed ahead to. Right. Yeah, and, and go over, you know, the argument he on the next page in section three, um, uh, why we speak of Jerusalem since the fashion even of the whole world must pass away when the time of its passing arrives for the fruit to be gathered up into the garner and the chaff to be left and burnt up. And then go, the next paragraph, for the maker of the wheat is not one and the maker of the chaff another but one and the same. And he judges, that is, parts them asunder. Um, so it is in God's wonderful providential care for his creation. This is his plan. Yeah. 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 And sometimes his plan, at least from our perspective, looks like he alters it, repents and moves because of our sinfulness. Mm -hmm. Because we throw a wrench into things. And, but there's that mystery of Noel, and all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So he's working it out. But we see this, this fulfillment. And so, again, the point of that is it encourages us to recognize that we should be able to look back into the law and prophets and see Christ. That's what he is saying. He's saying that it wasn't uh, ignorant of Christ and something to be thrown out and not to... No, no, no. Now he's saying, look for references, types in the Old Testament. And as you said, we'll get to that, even more of that. Um, if we turn to um, yeah. 319, 319, right in the middle, the, the middle paragraph, which is part of Chapter 5, Section 2. Uh, I'll go ahead and read that, Monsignor, and, and uh, this gets into the idea that Christ, therefore, himself with the Father is God of the living. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll start reading up a, a bit before that. He says, For if he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, and if in this place he is called the God of the fathers who are asleep, undoubtedly they live unto God and have not perished, being children of the resurrection. But the resurrection is our Lord himself. According to his own words, I am the resurrection and the life. 
and the fathers are his sons. For it is said by the prophet, thy sons are made unto thee as thy fathers. Christ therefore himself with the father is God of the living who spake unto Moses, who was also manifested to the fathers. You know, that jumped out at me because I remember as a, when I was a Protestant in seminary, I remember us arguing, how can we prove from the New Testament that Jesus is God? And I remember the conundrum of that, trying to find those verses in the New Testament where it clearly says Jesus is God. It says he is Lord, so we had to make that argument that the Lord in the Old Testament is is Elohim and, and all that. But where does it say clearly? And what we see here is even before the Trinity was as defined, mm -hmm. we see, at least in this point, we're going to get to Trinity in other places, him clearly yeah. saying Christ, Jesus, is God of the living. Yeah, and if I could just pick up uh, one one sentence in the previous page on 318, right in the middle. Um, uh, For he saith not these things inconsistently, nor loftily, nor in boasting, but it being impossible without God to learn of God, he teaches men by his word to know God. And that's a, that's a basic principle in St. Irenaeus and the early fathers. We wouldn't know anything yeah. about God without his son. And so when you raise the question about is Jesus, is God, is Jesus God, I bet St. Irenaeus would, would find it an odd question because he would say, well, aren't you missing the fact that he... Claim, he claims, and the, everybody points to the fact that his he is the father's son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and again, the, the conundrum I was talking about was the strictly sola scriptura challenge. Yeah, but that poses a conundrum, which is why we ended up with Arianism. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, and of course that, that kind of an approach, um, they, you know, one of the corollaries of that, that I remember, at least on the liberal side, I remember when I was a seminarian hearing about was this connection between these Old Testament texts and Jesus of Nazareth was something that the second generation of the church invented. It's, it was um, propaganda. Yeah. 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 I had a, yeah. I had a, I interviewed a guest on my program, Journey Home program yesterday, um, who was a graduate of, of the same seminary I went to, but he started the year after me, uh, Dr. Kenneth Calvert, who teaches at Hillsdale College. And, uh, but he studied at Harvard. He was at Gordon uh -huh. Conwell, but he was taking courses there. And uh, yeah, he was affirming also that possibility that the guys that were at the school were teaching that idea that everything was invented in the second yeah. century. 
it's crazy stuff. And yet, uh, what we see that the trajectory is that the assumption, as you said, Aaron Ans would think it's a puzzling question. Of course, Jesus is God, and that wasn't really a question. But how he was God, yeah, was became a question. Yeah, did he have two? Was he? Did he have two minds in his head? Two wills? Two intellects? Uh, was he just God jumping into a man and all that? But he was God. But how it became an issue of discussion because the Bible doesn't go there. Of course, Aaron and Aeneas said, "Well, then don't go there if the Bible doesn't go there." <laughs> Marcus, you brought something up that um, I just thought I'd just reflect on briefly too. Um, when you when you talk about how you know we our generation and the next generation have had to deal with this tradition in um, theological scholarship, which wants to say that this is all invented stuff. I, I was smiling because, you know, here we are reading St. Irenaeus here. And this is the most, in the, in the proper sense of the word, this is the most radical thing we could do <laughs> is to go back. <laughs> but go back to the root of it all. Um, and, and I would just encourage anyone who's studying theology now um, that, um, you know, don't rely on all these secondary studies, go back to the sources and rejoice in it. You know? Well, which is what St. Pope John Twenty-Third wanted the consul to do. Isn't that what the word resourcement yeah, yeah. meant? That's right. Uh-huh. It was going back, essentially going back to the apostolic deposit of faith. And recognizing the continuity there before we start doing anything else, guys. We start with throwing things out the with with the bathwater. Let's look at the early church fathers in scripture. See the trajectory. It's exactly what Irenaeus was doing all the way yeah. through here. That's what he was doing. Yeah. So if we turn to page 321, now 321. Um through 326. Is all of the same thread, which gets into something that you mentioned just a moment ago, and that is that we can't know the Father except through the revel- except through revelation mm-hmm. and through the Son. That becomes the ongoing theme. Uh, but actually, before I want to jump into that. Which that would begin on, on on section three. I want to make sure we look at the end of section two because there's a neat little quote here. Okay, and do you, Marcus, do you mind before we go into section two? I just wanted to ask you if you could help me with the argument at the last part of section one. Okay. Um, so. Um, he speaks about um, no one knows, uh, no one knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth anyone the Father but the Son. And then he goes on at the top of page three twenty one uh, to say, "Now they would, now they who would fain be more knowing than the apostles write it thus: No one hath known the Father but the Son, nor the Son 
but the Father, and he to whom the Son will reveal him, and interpret it as though the true God were known by no one before the coming of the Lord. So I guess that's, they're trying to get rid of the Old Testament. Hmm. So they're basically saying that all the Old Testament prophecy is nonsense. Is that how you're reading this? So no one, what they're interpreting is, is saying, look, no one knows the Father except the Son or to whom the Son has revealed him. It's kind of what they're saying, right? They're saying, well, since the Son came from Mary on, yeah, from these, the, the, these Old Testament writers didn't know. They were wrong. Yeah, well, that would be Marcion. And, yeah, and then, of course, then they can go on to argue, you know, and the apostles got it all confused, too. It's just our little clique, our little sect of Gnostics, we were the ones that got the true teaching down. I just was fascinated by that. I um, Just the, the way their mind works, just an insight into the working of the mind of um, these heretics. Was, was there still an underlying current of, of strong anti-Semitism at this time? Yes. So yes. I think we, yeah. So if there's anything we can do to separate ourselves from those Jews would be one of their motives right? behind that theology. That's right. Of course, they, you know, they especially love the Greek classical tradition. So they would, you know, try to claim that and see that um, the Old Testament is is bunk. And then, of course, it's interesting, Marcus, then there's a passage in um, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo about this. Um, well, actually, in his Justin's apology that he wrote to the emperor, because that was the kind of the thing that the Jews had it all wrong, and um, we can we can find the truth by going to the the great Greek philosophers. And Justin makes the wonderful argument that Plato got his ideas from Moses. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite passages in Saint Justin. Um, and and he points out that since Moses is clearly older than Plato, yeah. therefore Plato plagiarized when he wrote about the one. <laughs> well, I was going to draw our attention here at the in three twenty one because he, uh, Irenaeus quotes Justin. Yeah, that's I I made a note about that. Yeah, that's and I want I wanted to look at that before I got onto that next yeah. sentence because he's here. Irenaeus is quoting Justin. You know, we we think of the early church fathers and we have, you know, Clement and and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Ignatius. We have all these different people, but here we have Irenaeus quoting Justin. So Justin, I can't remember whether Irenaeus and Justin's lives overlapped. Or was Justin um, martyred before? He would have been a little before. Um, yeah, because he would have he would have died. Justin would have died maybe about one, I don't know, fifty five, something like okay. that, one sixty. So, so he would have died about twenty yeah. years before this was written. So, so Irenaeus and, and Justin lived at the same time for a portion. Mm-hmm. Whether they had a connection or not, we don't. I don't know, but I. And I probably should know. I just don't have the date in front of me right now. I'm sorry. 
But he goes on to say, Irenaeus writes, and well saith Justin in his book against Marcion, quote, I could not have believed the Lord himself if he announced another God besides the creator, another God beside the creator. But -hmm. because from the one God who both created this world and formed us and contains and governs all things, the only begotten son came unto us, gathering together into himself the work of his own hands. My faith in him is firm and my love to the Father immovable, both being God's gift unto us. You know, which both is he talking about? I think the both is my faith and my love. Yes. He's, the faith yeah. that he has and the love that he has that are immovable are because they come by grace. And their gifts, our ability to believe in God comes from God himself. And so he's, you know, he's, he's quoting Justin to throw him into this midst because Justin was fighting against the very heretic you mentioned earlier, Monsignor Marcion. It's interesting. You, we don't have this text. This is a fragment that apparently hasn't come down to us. Um, so we have it here. And I did check it out last week. Um, and there's a... This is also quoted in Eusebius of Caesarea, Church History 4, 18.9. But this is kind of a unique insight into um, a writing that, you know, that hasn't survived intact. The same quote. The very same quote is in Eusebius also. Interesting. You think he got it from Irenaeus? Yes. Yeah. I mean, because Irenaeus is clearly a source for Eusebius. Okay. All right. Well, the next section, beginning in section three, uh, really, it's a long, it begins a long portion of a lot of important quotes. And so a lot of things we maybe will, yeah, we'll try and get this section done. Maybe that'll be our goal for this. But uh, you want me to read, Monsignor? Would you like to pick up reading there at uh, section three? Uh, Why don't you keep, you keep going because you have this in your mind. You've got this underlined for you. Okay, yeah. For neither can anyone know the Father, but by revelation of the Word of God, in other words, of the Son, nor yet the Son, but by the good pleasure of the Father. So, so he's emphasizing the fact, reminds us, that God loved us so much, he revealed himself to us. That's why we know of him. Um, and the good pleasure of the Father, the Son reveals. The Father Sending, the Son being sent, and coming. You know, whenever I think about Irenaeus' writing, it's almost as if he's got so many issues going on in his mind at the same time that he's trying to answer. That when he writes something that's very yeah. profound, you know, which which particular guy is he trying to counter? in his argument. And he makes that, that little, I would love to see the Greek or the Latin behind that, this phrase, and the good pleasure of the Father, the Son fulfills the Father sending, the Son being sent, and coming. Yeah, and I mean, I think there is a sense of, there's an eschatological sense to that. Um, the, yep. He was sent 
but he's coming again. And I think that when we get to book five, eventually, Irenaeus is going to blow our socks off on this subject. <laughs> well, earlier, <laughs> earlier, I forget that quote where he kind of says, we're in the end times and we're halfway there. Yeah. Remember, he said that when we're, ha we're at the halfway point. <laughs> That's right. So he's coming. Actually, so are we. <laughs> yeah. There we go. We might get this done before Jesus comes yeah. again. We just might. And, and the Father, on the one hand, being invisible and illimitable as towards us, is known by his own word. And being unutterable is yet uttered by him to us. On the other hand, the Father, again, alone, knoweth his own word. And that both these things are, as I have said, the Lord hath declared. And therefore, the Son, by manifestation of himself, reveals the knowledge of the Father. For the manifestation of the Son is the knowledge of the Father. For by the word, all things are made manifest. So it's as if he's saying from every possible angle that we know the Father through the Son. And it's only because of the gift of faith and love that we've received from the Father that we can hear that message and believe. But yes. we wouldn't know the Father or the Son if they hadn't been revealed to us. That's right. And, you know, um, the Father has to do the sending. And his word, the Son, does the un unveiling. Yeah, there's so much, I hate to jump over there at the beginning of the chapter four, or section four, he says, now he is the framer of heaven and earth, as is shown by our Lord's discourses, not the pretended father who hath been invented by Marcion or by Valentius or by Basilides or by Carporites or Simon or the other Gnostics falsely so-called. You know, he's just saying, guys, come on, they're all they're all a bunch of hooies. Uh, the only <laughs> the only God exists is the one that revealed it to us Himself through our Lord's discourses. For none of these are the Son of God, but Christ Jesus, our Lord, was. Uh, and, and then you go down just a couple more sentences there. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, um, when the method they practice is even contrary, in that they dare to announce an unknown God. But they ought to listen to this against their own selves. For how is he unknown who is known by themselves? <laughs> <laughs> For whatever is known but by a few is not wholly unknown. <laughs> I mean, he's just wonderful here. He just turns their argument on, on their head, I think, you know. And, and of course, the, the blasphemy is that the Gnostics here are setting themselves up as someone higher than Jesus himself. Higher than God himself. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, of Paul before the philosophers at, at Athens, right? Didn't he say, yeah. I, I saw a statue out here to an unknown God? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I'm here to tell you about him. Who that is. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. Paul must have been so magnificent to be around. <laughs> <laughs> but they, these people are basically saying, well, Paul had it wrong. We have it right. Yeah. This is what the Gnostics are essentially yeah. saying. That's what There is yeah. an unknown God, but Paul had it wrong. Jesus had it wrong. You know, the Father must have had it wrong, but we've got it right. 
you know, so down at the bottom of that page, he goes on and say, rather, the Lord instructed us that no one can know God except upon God's teaching. In other words, that without God, God is not known. And that for God to be known is itself the free will of the Father. For they shall know him to whom the Son will reveal him. And it goes on for a second. I just want to pause a second. You know what reminds me of when I think about this? I keep thinking of that Romans chapter 1 verse where it said that all the evidence about the existence of the Creator is there in his creation. No one was, is without. That God made himself known, not just in the writing of the scriptures or in the word, but in the very creation. And he can be known there. We may not mm -hmm. know Jesus by looking at the way a leaf is made, but we can recognize there's a creator who put the order there. Yeah. It's, um, it's just, uh, it, uh, how do I say it? What we, what we are seeing here now is uh, Italy opened up a little bit further on in book four, but the whole of the Trinity is involved in this rescue effort to save the human race. Um, the, the will of the Father, um, as he says at the end of, of, of section four, uh, the free will of the Father sends his son by that, he sends his son to reveal him. And of course, we couldn't know it without the son. Well, yeah, why don't you go um, into section five there? Because he continues with that yeah. thought. And to this end, did the father reveal the son, that by him he might be manifested to all men, and that such as believe him, being righteous, he may receive into incorruption and into eternal refreshment. Now, to believe him, is to do his will. But those who believe him not and therefore fly from his light, he will justly shut up into the darkness which they have chosen for themselves. Yeah, yeah read the rest of that paragraph. I, I think it all okay. hangs together there. Yeah. To all, therefore, the Father hath revealed himself in making his word visible to all, and the word, again, in being seen by all, was showing to all the Father and the Son. And therefore, the judgment of God is just upon all those who have seen alike, but yet have not believed alike. I mean, he's, uh, we have kind of a Billy Graham sermon going on here. Yes, it is. Good point. I mean, God has revealed mm -hmm. himself through his son to all, so that all might believe. And so we have the two ways. You believe in God, you've got the data. You've yeah. got the data. Quit looking for other angles and explaining it away and coming up with it. It's there. And the, the question is, do you believe it? And if what does it mean to believe? Believe him is to do his will, he says. Not to believe him is to do his will. I kind of love it in, in the, the, the way that Keeble um, did, did the typing here, the way it's written. Uh, if you're looking at, it says, it's in brackets, so it says, now to believe him is to do his will, and then it comes out like a little smiley face there. Oh. <laughs> you see that in the text? Cracks me up. Yeah, yeah. Keeble <laughs> wouldn't have thought of it that way, but in those days, he put a semi, a, a colon, and then a, 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 
To believe him is to do his will. It's right in the center there. But to those who believe, there's going to be resurrection and refreshment. But to those who don't believe, they've chosen for themselves, he said. People don't go to hell unless they've chosen it themselves. But the date is there. Yeah. Therefore, the judgment of God is just. Irenaeus isn't pulling any punches. Uh, there's so much good here. Um, what, what have we got for time? You know, let's let's go for this a little bit more. Okay. Let's go. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll go for. Let's finish this page out, and then uh, and that'll be good. For by the law and the prophets, in like manner, did the word preach both himself and the Father. And while the whole people heard alike, all did not alike believe. And by the same word made visible and tangible, the Father was declared, though all did not alike believe him. Yet all saw the Father in the Son. For that which is invisible of the Son is the Father, and that which is visible of the Father is the Son. That's a great sentence. That's a great one. So there, you know, the human and and divine natures of our Lord. Um, yeah. And because he's one, one person, that's where it's possible for us to be brought to the Father. We'd, we wouldn't see him otherwise. It's all together. It's, I almost like the fact that what Irenaeus says here, a hundred years after this, may have been a big controversy. People might have been at each other's throats trying to understand how to explain it. So this is before all those really con um, contentious arguments that arose in the um, in the fourth century. Yeah. Because he's able to say that which is invisible of the Son is the Father. And that which is visible of the Father is the Son. That's a very fascinating philosophical thought because are they, you know, they're personhoods, they're separate personhoods, they're one God, but three persons. And he really mm -hmm. puts them together in an interesting way that is different than we would say it today. That which is invisible of the Son is the Father. And that which is visible of the Father is the Son. And of course, that what is visible of the Father is his love, right? I mean, yeah. that's what... We'll yep. be hearing more of that on the road here. So, yeah. And for this cause, all in his presence spake of Christ and used the name of God. Yea, the demons, seeing the Son, would say, We know thee who thou art, and the Holy One of God. And the devil, tempting him when he saw him, said, If thou be the Son of God, all of them seeing and speaking of the Son and of the Father, but not all believing him. For it was meet that the truth should receive testimony from all and should be a judgment unto salvation of them that believe. 
and, and unto condemnation of them that believe not, that all might be justly judged, and that the faith which is towards the Father and the Son might be approved by all, I mean confirmed by all, receiving testimony from all. <clears throat> so once again, I mean, there you have this, you have the two sides, you either believe or you're not. And, and it's not that we're without excuse because it's been made clear from the Father through the Son. And, and the reality of the Father has been revealed through the Son. Why? So that all might believe. All might receive the testimony about the reality of God and His Son, Jesus our Lord. You have any closing Part thoughts there, Monsieur? I was thinking maybe that'd be the point we could pause. Yeah, I, there, if could we just because I noticed you're gonna you flagged some things in uh, in chapter. Oh, we're still here. Yeah, yeah. If you, I there is one passage that I underlined that I I Please. it's on page three twenty four. Oh, okay. You're gonna jump ahead a little bit. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, it's just. Um, the sun, you see the little note on the side, the sun revealed the father in olden times too. Now we're going to, you know, as we go forward, this is something that um, yeah. a lot of uh, people don't fully comprehend that, that the fathers, Irenaeus believed that the son of God is the active presence of God in the Old Testament. And Look, I actually I have that whole last paragraph on page three twenty four double lined. Oh, let's. let's I mean, you why know, don't we close with you want to close today? with that? Okay, let's go. Go ahead, yeah. Father. Why don't you go ahead and read that? Because that that last paragraph okay. is yes, is very good. And the Son in all things ministering to the Father fulfills them from beginning to end, and without Him no man can know God. For the knowledge of the Father is the Son, but the knowledge of the Son is in the Father and is revealed by the Son. And therefore our Lord said, No man knoweth the Son but the Father, nor the Father but the Son, and to whomsoever, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then here's his, his, his uh, gloss on that. Will reveal, being not spoken of the future only, as though the word then began to make known the father when he was born of Mary, but set down largely as throughout all time. So the word, the, the word of God didn't just appear when he was born um, of, of the Virgin Mary. He's been active from the beginning. Um, so Christ is present in the Old Testament, intimately present in the Old Testament, not in, in his incarnate form, but um, as the Son, as the Word of God. Um, you know, I was thinking. Because, was, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to finish this off here, because from the beginning, the Son, abiding by the work of His own hands, reveals the Father unto all. From the beginning, He does that whom the Father wills, and when he wills, and as he wills. And therefore, in all and through all is one God the Father, and one word, 
and one Son and one Spirit and one salvation to all who believe in Him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I was. It struck me as you were explaining it that traditionally it was believed that that the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was first, and that it was written in Hebrew originally. Yeah. And we don't have the Hebrew version, we have the Greek translation. And I'm one of those that believes that he that Matthew wrote his gospel very early, very, very, very early, in Hebrew to the who at the time were only Jewish Christians. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Gentiles haven't even been converted yet. So it's early, early. And then later, when Luke is going to do his work. My view is he gets somebody, because Luke can't read Hebrew, so he gets somebody to translate the Hebrew into Greek. And so then Luke has the newly translated Matthew in Greek, and he's got Mark's version, and so he's got those good. But my point being that early on, so the first gospel, Matthew, what's the first thing he does to prove to the Jews the reality of Jesus? Is he goes back to the Old Testament to show that Jesus was there. That's what the book of Matthew does from beginning to end, is this very thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. the prophecies point to Jesus. The prophecy, Isaiah points to Jesus, and that's what he's saying there. But even more so is that, that Jesus himself was speaking during the Old Testament time, was appearing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's just, that's so... That's so basic to his argument. Um, and I think we have to always pinch ourselves um, not to get drawn into this sense that um, Jesus only emerged at the time of his incarnation. Therefore, in all and through all is one God the Father and one Word and one Son and one Spirit and one salvation to all who believe in him. I mean, that's a, that's a really powerful statement. And again, those of you hearing this, you might be saying, well, we know that. Well, he was fighting tooth and nail to preserve in the midst of chaos what we've taken for granted after 1,800 years after he wrote this. Right, Monson? Yeah. All right, Monsignor, we'll pause there then. We'll pick up next week. Let's see. Um, yeah, we're going to pick up with chap- chapter 7 next week. 7, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So w- would you close us with a, with a reflection? Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most blessed Lord, we thank you for your love for us um, in willing that your son would come into this world and reveal you and help us to understand this wonderful gift that you offer to us. We thank you for St. Irenaeus, for all the early fathers who fought so hard that these truths would not be obscured by by human uh, willfulness and, and ignorance. Bless us and bless those that we serve In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
All right. Thank you, Monsignor, for that. And all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to jumping back into it with you again next week. See you then.